0: Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear, and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Today, Mark and KJ discuss how human suffering is the spoiled fruit of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, and how that means that God is not to be blamed for our suffering, as well as the vast differences between top-down and bottom-up explanations of human life. Let's listen in.
1: Hey, it's uh, good to be back with you, Mark. You know, last time we discussed how humans must make sense of their lives in terms of two different stories, both personal and general stories. And you said that each of us, in order to feel that our lives are meaningful, need to be able to tell a story that's more or less coherent about our personal lives. Then you added that we always tell our personal stories against the backdrop of some general story of our lives, of human life. And you said that believing the correct general story is absolutely crucial to living worthwhile lives. And that was really impactful for me. So if the secular evolutionary story is true, then we as Christians who believe in a literal resurrection are of all people the most to be pitied because we're basing our personal stories on something that will never happen. Yet if the Christian story is true, then believing the secular evolutionary story is disastrous. For Christianity claims that we're all going to die and we're all going to face judgment where our eternal destinies will be determined by whether we believe the gospel right as we were closing that episode you mentioned that the fall of humanity which we know is through adam and eve's disobedience is the first of three great turning points in human history and that that turning point forever changed human life can we talk about that why is that so important for us to keep the fall in mind it's crucial kj
2: because it's only by keeping the fall in mind that we'll be crystal clear about the fact that we human beings and not God are responsible for the entry of human suffering into the world. Suffering, as such, tends to affront or offend us. It strikes us as something that shouldn't be. So when we suffer, we often go on the hunt to figure out why, And if we don't keep the two parts of the Christian story in mind, we may find ourselves blaming God. We may ask, why would a good and all-powerful God have created a world where this, whatever kind of suffering is offending us, is where this exists? Now, the first two parts of the Christian story counter that question. They suggest that our reaction to suffering— when it offends us or when we're affronted by it, may arise from a very deep and basic part of ourselves that okay. recognizes that human suffering is inconsistent with our world as a good, all-powerful God would have created it. Okay. Karen Jobs has a really fine commentary on First Peter, and very early on in it, she says this, She says misfortune and death are certainly normal in the sense that they are universally experienced. But, she says, they are not normal when viewed from God's intention in creation and his plan in redemption. The idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering, despite universal suffering and death, remains, she says, as a lingering echo of life oh, in Eden as God created it before the fall. Wow. She says it's also a longing for the time when there will be no more tears, suffering, pain, and death, as we're told in Revelation 21.4. So she concludes that from either the pre-fall or the eschatological perspective, in other words, from the standpoint of either the beginning or the end of the full Christian story, suffering and death are abnormal. Yes, yes. So it seems to me that one crucial insight that we can harvest from the first two parts of the full Christian story is this. If we believe the full Christian story, then we won't blame God for the suffering we see. We'll know that suffering isn't natural to our world, as God made it, so of course He isn't to be blamed for it. We could put it this way: human suffering is the spoiled fruit of the fall. Human suffering is the spoiled fruit of the fall, and not a natural outgrowth of the way that God made the world.
1: Oh, that—that's that's such a good picture of spoiled fruit. Um, and I think I know exactly what you mean in a, in a personal story here. Um. Five years ago, when my brother succumbed to cancer, my younger brother, um, true, it was amidst grief and loss, but there was one feeling that really stuck with me. And I'd lost an immediate family member prior to this. I've lost my father, so it wasn't the first time. But when I lost my little brother, his death struck me as wrong Mm. and that it, it should never have happened the idea that it didn't feel natural was a pervasive feeling. And I even said that as memorial service to everybody. And I just refused to accept that his death was part of the natural order. The word unnatural and the feeling unnatural was pervasive. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of that was probably the pain of losing my only sibling, but it still to this day, five years later, doesn't sit well with me. I don't, I just don't feel right about it. Um, It might make hypothetical sense in a secular evolutionary stories we are alluding to before, but experientially, it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't jive, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I I think you're right. We find a situation like the death of your younger brother to be very distressing, and we want to know why it's happened. Mm, Yes. When we take a look at, a hard look at all of the suffering that's in the world, it seems obvious that something is really wrong. The question is, what accounts for all of this suffering? Should someone be blamed for it? Now, all of that links to another crucial insight that we can take from the first two parts of the Christian story. Okay. If someone accepts the secular evolutionary story, then God can't be blamed for all of the suffering because he doesn't exist. So a secular evolutionist can't properly be affronted or offended by the suffering she sees. And that's because being affronted or offended involves believing that someone, someone has done something that he or she shouldn't have done. And for those who deny that God exists, he, of course, then can't be blamed.
1: Okay, now now that's interesting. Would you unpack that a little bit more fully? Sure, sure. Think about the contrast
2: between sometimes how we see a young child and a mature adult react when the tv remote stops working oh, okay <laughs> sometimes a really young child may react as if the remote has done something wrong <laughs> and the <laughs> child ends up treating it more or less as they would treat a person and that's because they aren't yet fully convinced of the difference between persons and things they've got okay, some right. idea of the difference sure i got cool that anyway. okay following you persons can be blamed things Can't. Hmm. Now, the mature adult knows that. And so while she may be frustrated by her remote not working, she won't be angry unless she has some reason to think that someone has damaged it or maybe that the manufacturer didn't exercise enough quality control in making it. She knows that the remote isn't a person or even person like. And so she won't be affronted or offended by it's not working because she knows that the remote itself isn't doing anything. Mm. While a TV remote may malfunction, it can't misbehave. Now, the world's pain and suffering can't properly affront or offend atheists because they don't believe there's a personal God who can be blamed for its suffering. If they're consistent, in what they believe, then they take all of the suffering to be just an inevitable part of the evolutionary rise of human life. It is just one of the survival mechanisms of our world's life forms.
1: Okay, that's a good picture. And what it makes me think of here is the late writer and atheist Christopher Hitchens, He was, you you probably know who he is. He was a witty writer, uh, journalist, and a really skilled debater. But in everything, when he was talking about religion, he seemed quite angry at God. Uh, He even wrote a book titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And I remember reading it right when it came out because I I wanted to understand uh, the atheistic perspective. And I remember while reading it, I wondered how he could be mad at someone, a god who he didn't believe even existed, and I would venture to say this isn't really unique to Hitchens. I've come across this with with other, and I'm not saying all atheists, but a particular stripe of atheist. And I would want to say that this is this is true probably of a lot of atheists because, um, aside from those anecdotal ones, I have a personal experience where um, while I was at Command and Staff College in my time in the Marine Corps, uh, I had a classmate where the topic of God had come up once. And I knew that he rejected belief in God and he knew that I believed in a personal God. And when I asked him why he held his particular viewpoint, he said that ever since his father died, he and God were no longer on speaking terms. And that just seemed, while I sympathized, (laughs) that just didn't seem to make sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that people like the ones that we're referring to, your friend in the Marine Corps and Christopher Hitchens and others, Mm -hmm. I think that they may know more than they're willing to admit. Right. Uh, Because, in fact, Romans 1 declares that everybody really knows, whether or not they'll admit it, that God exists. And tells us why. It tells us that it's because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay. In any case, how we regard the suffering and pain we find in our world should be determined by the general story we accept. Think again in terms of the two opposing stories that we talked about in our last episode, the secular evolutionary story and the full Christian story. Okay. I said that those stories compete with each other. The full Christian story, we can say, is a top-down story that tells us that we were created by a good God to fulfill a specific purpose. The secular evolutionary story is rather a bottom-up story that denies divine creation and claims that we're just chance products of blind, impersonal cosmic laws Mm -hmm. that have just accidentally produced increasingly complex kinds of beings, including us. The impersonal bottom-up perspective got its biggest boost ever from Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which for the first time made plausible, if still unproven, suggestions about how we could have arisen from lower ni- life forms naturally. How creatures like us could have been, as Rebecca Goldstein puts it, could have been thrown up out of the blindfolded thrashing of evolution. <laughs>
1: mm. no, <that's laughs> good. It is. It is. And, you know, this, this top-down, bottom-up is a really helpful way of explaining how these narratives differ. I, I remember as, as I was going through your book, I really circled and underlined those sections because it helped create a very clear distinction in my mind. And the thing that seems to me is this bottom-up approach seems like it's it would never be complete and is always open to being revised and rewritten because we learn something new. And it reminds me of the old expression, I mean, I'm a pilot, so forgive me, but it reminds me of the old expression of building the plane as you fly.
2: I think that's exactly right. The the bottom-up story, as I say in the book, is actually just a story fragment because all it does is give us the beginning and the middle, but it really doesn't tell us what the end is or should be. Exactly. So it's important to realize that the proponents of the bottom-up story are acutely aware that accepting their story as the final explanation for everything should indeed radically affect how we think about ourselves. For instance, in his introduction to his edition of Darwin's four most influential works, the famous naturalist E.O. Wilson wrote this. He said, to the extent the theory of evolution by natural selection could be upheld, We must conclude that life has diversified on Earth autonomously without any kind of external guidance. In other words, no God or anything like that. Evolution in a purely Darwinian world, he says, has no goal or purpose. He says the revolution in astronomy begun by Nicholas Copernicus in 1543 proved that the Earth is not the center of the universe not even the center of our solar system. And then he says that the revolution begun by Darwin was even more humbling. Mm. It showed that humanity is not the center of creation and not its purpose either. And then he concludes that this has freed our minds from our imagined, he calls it demigod bondage. In other words, from our bondage to belief in God or gods and religion. Now, that perspective, that perspective of E. O. Wilson runs completely contrary to the biblical perspective, which yeah. declares that God made us for a reason. Just look at verse 27 of the first chapter of Genesis. It reads, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, So that, here's the purpose for making human beings. Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then, of course, in Genesis 2, we're portrayed as being at the very center of God's creative concern. Now, a perspective that is a general story like Wilson's dethrones humanity and implies that we, both as individuals and as a species, are ultimately of no special significance whatever.
1: Uh, see, this is where they lose me, Mark. Uh, despite everything that might be attractive about evolutionary theory— I'm pretty sure at the core, we all know there's something special and unique about humanity. And I think that's behind <laughs> what we're talking about before yep. with Hitchens and the angry uh, skeptics. And I think it's why we mourn so much when a human dies. Even, even if we don't know the person, if I see something on the news, we all feel the weight of this loss. And so I think in my opinion, it would be more natural— to be offended by death, given this general story from Genesis, and I—this goes back to my the, what, the way I was thinking about my brother's loss. I saw it as a thief that robs us all. Not only did it rob my brother of his life because he was young, but my my sister-in-law was robbed of her husband, and my young nephews were robbed of their father. So, I'm just not buying what Wilson's selling here.
2: In fact, I don't think that secular evolutionists, whether we are considering E.O. Wilson or Darwin himself, consistently think of themselves as the general story they accept tells them they should. Right. Bertrand Russell, a famous 20th century philosopher, Mm -hmm. spelled out the implications of his atheism in poetic prose. He wrote that as the universe runs down, and now I'm quoting him, as the universe runs down, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius is destined for extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Mm. And the whole temple of man's achievement will ultimately be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Mm. (laughs) It's magnificent prose. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if that's true, then how could it possibly matter what anyone, including E.O. Wilson or Darwin, does in his or her lifetime? Ultimately, it's all going to count for nothing. Mm -hmm. And so why labor, as Darwin and Wilson have done, Wilson died this last year, why labor, as they've done, to advance our understanding of the natural world when it will all ultimately be for naught? Why did they choose to work so hard rather than choosing instead to just eat, drink, and be merry for someday they and the universe would die? Yet, yet they took their lives and what they were trying to accomplish to be important in a way that the general story that they championed just can't justify.
1: That's exactly, Mark, and this this makes much more sense to me than what Wilson is selling. If see if we've if we've been created in in the image of God, then our drive to make a difference or do something of significance or anything like that that's a natural consequence or an outworking of that top down narrative. I mean, it's almost I I feel like it could almost form an apologetic for God from there. Yes, Um, yes. And it seems to me that secular evolutionists have to go to these special lengths to explain why things matter. Like in the last episode when we discussed the fact that folks often have to create their own meaning and purpose because of this.
2: Right, right. And I think we can go a step further. Is it wise for us to take ourselves to be just another animal species with no special status?
1: Yeah, okay.
2: There's a magazine that attempts to think through the possible implications of all sorts of scientific discoveries and speculations that's called Nautilus. And, in fact, it uh, um, had as its first issue back in 2013, the first, very first issue was entitled, What Makes You So Special? And the purpose of that issue was to trumpet, as it put, The End of Human Uniqueness. (laughs) Now, it included an article about the primatologist, in other words, the fellow who studies apes and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth, Francis Duval, and how he takes exception to the claim of human exceptionalism. Duvall claims that we are nothing more than the highest primate species. Now, as I said, that article and issue was published in 2013, Yet in 2020, they published an article by Aaron Hirsch that was entitled The Human Error Darwin Inspired, How the Demotion of Homo Sapiens Led to Environmental Destruction.
1: Oh, wow, that's interesting.
2: <laughs> yes. And Hirsch's, Hirsch's article starts like this. He says, since its publication in 1859... Darwin's On the Origin of Species has been read as a blow to the hubris of Homo sapiens. We aren't God's final and most perfect creation after all, but merely one more product of the same evolutionary process that gave rise to apes, lampreys, and limpets. In his Eulogy to Darwin, delivered in 1882, the German physiologist Emile du bois Raymond put it concisely, Darwin seems to me to be the Copernicus of the organic world. Same sort of talk as we saw in E. O. Wilson. Just as Copernicus had displaced man from the center of celestial orbits, Darwin had toppled him from the pinnacle of animated beings. Hmm. But then Hirsch continues this way. If the idea that Darwin humbled us has become canonical... What is less often observed is the fact that the newfound humility was, in certain important respects, misleading, and, he says, dangerously so.
1: Mm, no kidding.
2: In the latter half of the 19th century, he writes, when large-scale industrialization in many areas of resource extraction and use was pioneered, Homo sapiens was not, in fact, just another species, an organism like any other. To the contrary, Homo sapiens was just embarking on a period of more sudden environmental transformation than any single species had ever achieved. Homo sapiens was, in fact, quite special. Now, we're getting a sense of this as more and more animals in the world die. But here's the case that he gives. He says it was a consequential error to think otherwise. And the reason is, as this piece goes on to show, that human beings in the 19th century developed a method of fishing, which was a matter of dragging clean the ocean floor by stream dri- steam-driven trawlers that led to the decimation of the ocean floor and all of its fish species.
1: Hmm.
2: No, Think of this, KJ. No mere animal species could possibly have conceived and pulled this off
1: no not at they all
2: just don't have the brain power for it hirsch wraps up his article with this observation even though there's just no reason at all to think that he's a christian or even a theist okay what he says is in its conception of humanity's relationship to other species The biblical account of the natural world was, in fact, closer to reflecting accurately the new reality of industrialized civilization. According to Genesis, man held dominion over the rest of creation. He was not at all just another species. He was distinctly more godlike. This is all Hirsch. Wow. Under that view, he says, it would not have been hard to imagine that humanity would one day bring even the fabled sea monster Leviathan to its knees, as, in fact, we've killed off many of the whales. So he finally concludes, it might have been wise to hold on to one particular element of the biblical account, the recognition of human dominion. Hmm the recognition of human dominion, that that's what God made us for. And
1: this is a science journal. This is a science journal.
2: Wow. No matter how much we may want to deny it, the truth of our special status, as I put it in the book, as members of the kingdom of persons rather than merely of the kingdom of plants or the kingdom of animals, that recognition will assert itself. Just as the psalmist has marveled, (laughs) What is man that you, God, are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You will put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea.
1: Wow. Hard to believe that's coming from a science journal and he's using terms like canonical um right. and talking about the the darwinian narrative but Right. It, I I think it's clear this top-down story just keeps reemerging, doesn't it? I mean, yes. Despite all this rational rationalizing and all of narr- these narrative contortions, it's just hard to deny that uh, the reality we're made in God's image and humans are unique.
2: Yep. Yep. And, in fact, let me make one more observation. Okay. In its most recent issue, Nautilus has a piece entitled, uh, in fact, this, this was the lead piece in the trailer that they send me in my emails. It has a piece entitled, Is Physical Law an Alien Intelligence? Oh, boy. And the author, Caleb Scharf, speculates, and now I'm quoting him, that alien life could be so advanced that it becomes indistinguishable from physics. Now think about that for a moment. Okay. Here's a respectable science magazine that rather than explore the hypothesis that God has created the world with all of its wondrous causal regularities, would rather speculate that some alien intelligence is behind it all.
1: Mm.
2: No matter that there is and probably can't be any credible evidence of such an intelligence, as Scharf himself acknowledges, Avoiding the possibility that God created the world and that we should bow to him is so crucial that Nautilus is willing to have one of its writers explore an entirely implausible idea.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, no kidding. This, this top-down story really does keep reemerging. But, you know, the thing is, uh, I've heard stories like this before. There, there is a, a theory out there, Panspermia theories, And there are multiple (laughs) versions of it. But these theories generally posit something similar in that our life originated in outer space. So it seems that we keep coming back to needing something that transcends, in a way, our world to explain who we are and what we're doing here.
2: I think that's a great observation. Uh, It seems to me that that observation could yield a couple of really interesting possibilities. Okay. The first would be that even those who deny God's existence realize that the appearance of life needs some special explanation. The yeah. second would be that even those denying God's existence feel a need to find some more than merely earthly purpose for our lives. But let's stop here today. One crucial insight that comes out of understanding the full Christian story is that God is not to be blamed for having created a world that harbors so much human suffering, because, in fact, he didn't create it that way. Our first parent's decision to disobey his prohibition of eating from the forbidden tree is what opened the door to all of the human suffering we find in our world. And then a second crucial insight is that secular evolutionists and other proponents of any bottom-up theory about how we came to be, have a really hard time avoiding certain inconsistencies and implausibilities that even they are prone to accept. It almost seems as if they are deliberately trying to avoid entertaining the God hypothesis at any cost whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that that seems apparent. Well, Mark, thanks. This is, this is helpful in, in drawing those two crucial insights out. How about next time we explore uh, the way you characterize all suffering and what it tells us about what we should expect in everyday life?
2: Yeah, I am looking forward to it. Thanks, KJ. In
0: this conversation, we are reminded that suffering and death are not normal. As Mark said, human suffering is the spoiled fruit of the fall and not the natural outgrowth of the way God made the world. So God is not to be blamed for creating a world that harbors so much human suffering because He didn't create it that way. Rather, it was the sin of Adam and Eve that opened the door for human suffering. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lawrence Usanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.